If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I can't believe it has taken this long to get this guy on the podcast, but he is here now. My partner, David Isaacs. Yes, you've heard about him, you've read about him, and now you're going to actually get a chance to meet him. And I really do think that this is one of the best uh, episodes of my podcast so far. And yes, I know every other episode is a classic, certainly, but this one in particular really rocks. Now, I'm going to touch on David's background, but the main focus is going to be on our writing process, the dynamics of our partnership how you keep a partnership going for 44 years, some hard lessons that we had to learn along the way, and since David is also a professor now at USC, I'm going to pick his brain on what makes for a successful sitcom and what sitcoms from the past should students be watching and learning from. I'm telling you. It is worth a half hour on the Stairmaster. David Isaacs is my guest this week, episode 33. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. Let's get going. Hollywood and Levine. Talking with David Isaacs, my partner, and I'm going to try to ask you these questions and pretend that I don't know all of the answers already. Sure. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. So, first of all, you grew up in New York and Miami. Uh-huh. What did you originally want to do? Did you always want to be a writer? I loved the whole idea of comedy. I loved thinking that I could do it somehow. But I had no kind of burning desire to to be a stand-up or and I didn't know anything about how you became a writer or so I kind of went through high school and college with a sort of vague notion that I wanted to do this in some form or fashion. So how did you get from Miami out to California, and when you came out here, what did you think you were going to be doing? Um, I Well, the answer to that is if you grew up on the East Coast, California was this sort of place you saw on television and uh, this sort of magical place where all where the Beach Boys came from and, and there was surfing and there were gorgeous California girls. And like I said, I'm not one of those people that planned my life out too much. <laughs> So I had a friend who I'd gone to college with, a very close friend, and, and, and Bob was his name, and he came out to L.A., and he told me, get out here, it's fantastic, it's everything we ever talked about. There used to be a show on ABC when I was growing up every afternoon called Where the Action Is, mm-hmm. and they shot with Dick Clark as the host, and sort of an anthological kind of program where they, they went to different artists, and they went to different parts of... 
L.A. and they, they lip sync songs and sort of, sort of precursor of MTV. But I was like, this place with the, it's at the beach. It's at an amusement park. It's on Sunset Boulevard. What is this? Yeah, magical, that was life here. Yeah, yeah, that was this life here. Magical place. Little did I know that you were you were just dying on the vine out here. Right. So, <laughs> but um, but I I thought no, I got to do this. I got to see. So I literally packed, I had a Toyota and I picked it up and told my parents I'm going to go out and I'm going to stay with Bob and his wife at the time and see what's out there. And I came out and I and I was I loved it. It was like great. It wasn't all the old people. I you know from Miami. <laughs> it looked like a future. It wasn't wasn't like the elephant's graveyard where everybody goes to die. And then I just did what any kid would do when they've sort of found the place they want to be. You get a job, and I thought, well, I should get something in the business, but I didn't know what the business was or the parameters of the business or anything or how you start. And so I just was applying to all these sort of typical things, Universal Studios and NBC Pages and got none of them and then just got other jobs. And then I got a full-time job at ABC over in East Hollywood in the film department, which is obviously obsolete now. And it was a good job. And and, um, that's around the time I met you in the Army and we both started to talk about a meeting. You gave me a lot more focus about what we could do, what what is a way in. It's not like you had the answers per se, but we both talked about it more. And there was a kind of there was a sort. It gave us sort of firmament to what our dreams were, right. I suppose. Right. You know? And then I remember because I was doing radio at the time and uh, always getting fired, and I got fired from San Bernardino. Right. Came back home to L.A. to live with my parents to send off feudal tapes to different mm-hmm. radio stations. And then I remember calling you and saying, hey, remember me from the Army? Let's get together and talk about writing. And we went to the Hamburger Hamlet on Doheny, which right. was there up until a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Still no statue of us. <laughs> but So I remember you and I decided, let's write a pilot about college life because right. that's the only thing we knew. And so we would go to your apartment on Arch Drive, right. and what I remember, City. yeah, what I remember the most is that we'd get together on the weekends, but to get us revved up before we could actually start, we would listen to a side of the Woody Allen comedy That's album. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we would we would sort of get prime the pump, if you will, right, by listening to that very particular brand of neurotic humor that he did, which we both, I think, identified with. But it gave us a kind of place to start every week. And once we got going on it, it was a lot of fun, I remember. And I would sit with a pad, uh, a a loose leaf um, binder, binder, and just write out the lines and and then eventually Ken, who, who worked in, in radio and in, in newsrooms, so he could type really fast. And so in those days, it was all manual. So I just put the written stuff in front of Ken. He would type it out, and we had a script. And we were like, oh, my God, we got a script. Yeah, we knew nothing. We didn't have any outlines or no. anything, and uh, we, we knew nothing. But then I remember meeting Frank Buxton, who was a writer who had done The Odd Couple and All in the Family and few others. And he read our pilot and said, well, it's funny, but uh, no one's going to buy this and told us that we had to write a spec script from an existing show. 
And so that's really when we got serious, Mm -hmm. when we would watch the Mary Tyler Moore show week after week after week, and then we would tape it and we would write our own outlines and just sort of figure out ourselves. Yeah, audio tape it back then. And we would just sort of figure out ourselves what the patterns were. And then, you know, that's really kind of how we started. But in terms of the partnership, as I've always maintained that, especially early on, it was a, a really good partnership for a couple of reasons. Number one, we both started from the same place. Right. And number two, I think we each kind of helped each other along mm-hmm. because if I'm being honest, I would tend to go too fast. Mm-hmm. You know, I was the guy who just like, yeah, okay, let's do this. <laughs> let's do that. That sounds fun. Let's put in this joke. And you were the guy who went a little too slow. You'd right. be like staring at it over and over right. again. Right. And so I, I think between the two of us, I think each helped each other. I, I got you to move along a little faster and you yeah. got me to slow down. And so I think it was really a good combination. I think when people say that, ask that very question sometimes, like well, how mm-hmm. did your partnership work and everything, I always say that, Ken, that you gave me the permission, in a sense, to not be cautious, which I was way too cautious. I wanted everything to be sort of perfection. And that's just folly. You find that out pretty quickly, that perfection is more or less the death of, of, of creativity. <laughs> but of course, when you you're will. starting out, you want everything you want it to be, to exactly be perfect. Right. Yeah. And so you're serving some deeper fear you have. And, what you, and, you, and so to sum it up, I think Ken, from my side, Ken got me over a lot of the fear because it took me long. It took me quite a while to get comfortable with this as a career and the fear of failure. And once I did, then everything was great. Um, and for me, again, the hard part is really analyzing the story and really analyzing everybody's emotions and not just kind of flying off half cocked. Mm-hmm. And so you really helped ground me in that way. So it turned out we were a good match. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those things where you're the only partner that that I've had, you know, it's just two people who happen to meet and it works out. I remember once getting a letter from a guy I think uh, we were on Frasier at the time, and I got a letter from a guy saying, hey, my name is Ken Levine. We have the same name, and I want to be a writer, uh, so I'm writing to you. What advice would you give? And I said, (laughs) find a guy named David Isaacs (laughs) and and write with him. You know, you talked about how we used to write on a binder longhand, and then when we got to Cheers, things changed because the way they worked – the Charles brothers, they would dictate their scripts to a writer's assistant. And we started doing that. And I think I think our scripts really improved considerably oh. as a result of that. I, oh, I think it freed us up in a lot of ways. I know it did for me. It, it's sort of that takes you away from what I call the tyranny of the open page. You're not staring at the same eight words or the same eight lines, and you're trying to make, just when you want to go ahead, a line earlier catches your eye again. Or It, it was a way, to, especially in comedy, it was a way to sort of walk away from the need to, for everything to be sort of lined up exactly correctly and just let yourself go. And I know what helped me, and I know what helped you, was our discovery of improv and spending yep. time actually in, in improv uh, workshops and, and classes with the idea of, 
of not having all the preparation and, and sitting there and talking it out before you wrote a scene, which is good on one hand, but can kind of stifle your creativity on another. So in a way, working with Ken and, and his ability to sort of like move forward, uh, supplemented with a real structure, uh, the structure of improv, where you're given an idea and you're asked to just be in a situation where you can't say no, you have to move forward. Those really forged me to the point where I completely do not fear writing anymore. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's go back to our early days because as writers, you face all of these hurdles, sometimes for the first time. And one hurdle that we faced, we were writing an episode of a series called The Practice, yeah. which starred Danny Thomas and basically was Becker. <laughs> yeah. it, it is exactly it what was it was. A, it was an irascible doctor. Right. And it was created, practice. Yeah. created by Steve Gordon, who also went on to do uh, Arthur. But we got a story, and it was a story that we pitched, and they bought and when we started writing it, we had just the worst possible time. We just couldn't make the story work. And we were very young in our career and didn't want to call the producers and say, I don't think the story works because then we would lose the assignment. But we were really just stifled, staring at each other Tor for a couple torture. of days. It was pure torture. Yeah. And you came up with the solution which I think is like a, a great thing. And we've done this a couple of times. Talk about what your solution was to that. Basically leave town, I think. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Just was, go down to San Diego and get, get a hotel get, room. Get a room somewhere and just get out of the atmosphere that we're sitting in every single day and just concentrate on getting it done. Live it for about two days, right, and, and be in the midst of it. And somehow it, that broke the that broke the sort of Gordian knot that we had created for ourselves, and we got it done, and 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 it came out fine. Yeah. The show got canceled, yeah. of course, but, <laughs> but but that's that's as they say, show business. But, but and then, it was, yeah, and then there was another time when we had gotten our first assignment on the Tony Randall show, and when we started out, we wanted to write for MTM. <laughs> And that, you know, MTM had the Mary Tyler Moore show, Bob Newhart show, Rhoda, Phyllis, and now they had the Tony Randall show, which was produced by Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus, who did Bob Newhart. And so for us, it's like, okay, you know, we got called up to the Yankees. Yeah, you're, you're in the stable of, uh, to, to mix the metaphor, you're in the, in the stable with the greatest comedy writers in town, yeah, sitcom writers. So just to be, have our foot in that door was like our goal, you know, right here we are. So we, we got a story, which we worked out with the staff and then we went home to write it. And the same thing, like for the first couple of days, we were just frozen because, okay, what if we don't measure up? And uh, again, what did we have to do to sort of crack that ice? I think we took off again, right? Yeah, no, we took off and, and I drew a picture. Oh, oh, that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I yes, drew yes, a picture yes. of... Oh, no, this is a great one. Yeah, <laughs> you tell us. Cause of Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus and all of the people at the Tony Randall show. And I put them all in like clown outfits. And we just, we hung that... <laughs> 
up in in front of us and like you know oh well, yeah. well, fuck these guys no i know, you know? I, just, I said that because i just remember us always leaving town yeah but but it's, uh no but that was a that was a great kind of we had these guys we obviously held them in such esteem but we needed something that gave us the the freedom or the creativity in a sense to put them out of our minds so that if we're looking at them we're not looking at them at these giants we're looking at them as fools as we are, and and it's strange. It worked. I don't yeah, know it how did. It worked, and uh, we could go into some deep psychological stuff about why. But you got to remember too. Your uh, the audience has to know that Ken is a, actually a great caricaturist. It isn't just. It wasn't just stick figures and, <laughs> and with bow ties and, and big noses. It was. Uh, it was. They were very close to the people that, that they were, and and uh, I wish we still had that. I wish we had paper. that picture too. Yeah, I'd love to show that to yeah. the class. Of, yeah, and by the way, we turned in the script, and they liked it yeah. so much that they put us on staff. Right. So, right. so start. Now, we were our own worst enemies things. in a lot. Oh, of yeah. Ways. Oh yeah. Really. Yeah. Well, but I mean, you know, as a young writer starting out, you have all of these self doubts. And you're looking at the script over and over and over again. We at least had the advantage of being partners, right? You know, so that there were two of us. But you have to tell them the words. One thing that really did kind of screw us up in a strange way, and it was done totally in jest, but but it still sort of sat there. Was um, what Jay said to us as we walked out with the outline. Yeah, that? yeah. I think uh, as we walked out of the outline, he said, "Okay, guys, uh, you know we'll give you a Bob Newhart show if you don't fuck this up." Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we, those, that's the last thing we hear as we're leaving the room with our assignment. Right. Don't fuck this up. Which is not something to necessarily send <laughs> somebody off with great confidence. Again, a little bit about the the partnership. I think we both kind of grew together, and we reached a point. We were on Mash. And we would do multiple episodes. And we decided, it's kind of an experiment one year, to take an episode and write separately, where I would do one act and David would do the second act. And then we would put them back together and, and rewrite you know, ourselves. Because normally we wrote head to head. And we did that primarily to give us the confidence that we could write by ourselves and that we were a team due to choice and not dependence. Right. But what was really interesting, that first script was when we got the two halves and put them together, you couldn't tell really who wrote which half. You know, we had both sort of grown to a place where we both sort of had the same standards, the same types of jokes, the same rhythm, and you really couldn't tell who wrote one act from the other. No, it's true. And, and it was a great exercise. And we continued to do that when we were on staff because we felt it was, as Ken said, a good exercise for us individually, but also just, just a confidence builder, always to put yourself a little bit uh, behind the eight ball so that that other person wasn't there to solve necessarily solve the problem. And, and in a way, you didn't want that to be the partnership. You didn't want to rely on the other person or shortchange yourself with the idea that, well, I, I'll, that was our joke to each other. And it was always a joke when we were in the room, when we were consulting separately on shows. 
Ken would always say, well, there's a guy coming in tomorrow who, who definitely can do that joke. Yeah, was, I would throw David under the so bus. throw me under the bus yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. But, but joking aside, it was a great way for us to stretch our muscles because a partnership can work for you in a lot of ways, but it can also inhibit you. If you don't, if you don't pay attention the way we did, I think it can inhibit you should the time come when, you're, when, you're, when you have to write something on your own. Uh, so it was, it was a smart thing to do. And I found it very interesting. Over the last couple of years, we've done different things. I've gone off and written plays, and David is teaching at USC. And we had a pilot script. We got a pilot assignment together. And so we sat down to write it. And I thought that, you know, maybe it would take a a day or two to just sort of get back into the rhythm And we sat down and started writing it, and it was as if we had finished the script the day before. Yeah, Yeah. that that we have such a a rhythm over the years that, you know, it was very easy to get back into it. It wasn't really almost as if literally, so where were we yesterday was was, was where it is. And and I think that also, as I could say something about teams as well, if you're going to be on television especially and write, you know, sitcoms are changing considerably from the style that we grew up in and that we worked in. But but it's still, you're still working essentially towards uh, telling a story in a short amount of time and, and building the irony of characters and the conflicts of characters. But our working together, I think, really helped us when we did move to the bigger writer's room. It wasn't that big an adjustment to work with a few more people as opposed to being by yourself and then suddenly having right. to have this exterior dialogue every day where you spend most of your time talking with other people as opposed to sitting in your room or in your office in your own head. So the fact that we got out ahead of that as being uh, uh, working with each other and, and having that external dialogue, I think, put us a little bit ahead in working in a room the first time we stepped in with on Tony Randall, actually. You know, people will see a script that we wrote and they'll say to me, oh, this joke, this was you. This had to be you. Was this you? And I say, you know, I don't remember. And it sounds like I'm being coy or it sounds like I'm being humble. But the truth is you and I would go back and forth on jokes and shape jokes so much that it was really hard to tell yeah. who wrote what joke. There are some that I'll remember specifically that you wrote or, or that I wrote. But more often than not, it's I, I would be hard for me to remember. I just remember more that there were certain days, like there there would be a day where you would be really hot, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, vice versa. And and I just sit back. Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay. Well, uh, you could do certain things, like you could. I remember Ken was really good at channeling uh, radar. If you had you were coming up to a radar line and it was a specific point of the story or it was a specific bit of information that had to come out and 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 radar as a character had a very specific way of talking and the syntax was usually turned around or the verb came before the pronoun or something like that and ken could just kind of like this he would say it and that was the way radar would say it and i was thinking like all right well he'll have this because (laughs) (laughs) he just he just brings up in the brain or when we worked on almost perfect and and you and Robin could, Robin Schiff, who worked with us and who co-created the series, 
there were these two characters, Gary, played by Chip Zine, and 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 his wife Patty was played by and the Lisa Edelstein. Lisa Edelstein, thank you. I'm getting old. And they were this bickering couple, like classically bickering couple. And Ken and Robin literally channeled the two of them. <laughs> and I, that's when I would just sit back and go, it's like I'm watching the thing happen in front of me. Right. So sometimes you get completely hooked into a character. I know that was the case for me. And yeah, the brow-beaten Jewish guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was me. I yeah. could just do those lines all day yeah. long. Yeah. But it was, uh, like, I, I remember I was, I was laugh because I identified so much with Klinger because of his desperation <laughs> to get out of the army, which was, which I completely identified with. So I could sort of channel that sort of behavior a little bit. Um, not that I had to run around in a dress, but I, I remember thinking that I, I always want to write that character because I, I completely understand him. Let's talk a little bit about disagreements and uh, fights uh-huh. that you inevitably have. Yeah. I mean, you and I have been partners now for 44 years. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Wow. And those disagreements do come. Yeah. But I guess for us, the thing that has always worked well is... A, not to take it personally, and B, to have some perspective, because if there is a joke that one of us pitches and the other one doesn't think it's funny, and you do, and you try to convince them, Mm -hmm. and if you can't convince them in a couple of minutes, what we do is just then throw it out and come up with something else, that it's a lot better to do that than to argue for a half an hour and have one person ultimately unhappy. Yeah. That came, I think, fairly natural for us, and it was never a kind of thing we had to acquire a skill for letting the other person blow up a line, so to speak. I was assumed, like, if he's not laughing, there's got to be something wrong for I respect his opinion and for God's sakes why am I, I writing with him if I don't right likewise so so I would always kind of like go all right well let's explore it and I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating this is not hyperbole nine times out of ten we'd come up with something better yeah that's not to say we didn't have yelling matches and times we were angry at each other but if I remember those times they were always when we were under some pretty big stress right Something was going on that we couldn't control, both as individuals and as a team, within the show. And then we would get frustrated, but we only had each other yell at right. in a way, I <laughs> right. think. And that's what it was. But, boy, it was never personal. That That's where uh, we never crossed that line, I can honestly say. Right. Um, and And we also didn't protect our own material. The way we would write a script is... We would dictate the first draft, and then when we would have a finished script, we would each get a copy, and we would go home that night, and we would make our notes, and then we would come back and do a second draft. And a lot of it was beating jokes and that type of thing. And I would say 80% of the time, jokes that I would flag and say, I think we could beat this, were like my jokes. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, you got to give up, you know, they say kill your babies, which is a little bit of a a hard way to say it. But you learn not to be precious about your stuff, especially if you're on a TV show, because um, if you're sitting there fighting about a particular line, boy, you've waste you're wasting a lot of precious time on something that either doesn't need to be there or can get better. 
once again, nine times out of 10. So you learn that and, and it makes you a better writer and you realize that you've got to, you've got to crank out material at a fairly prolific and f- fast rate. So the idea that you can make it better is a sort of given, mm-hmm. you know? Right. You know, another advantage when you're in a partnership is that I know we're going to get together from 10 in the morning until, say, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So when the day is done at 5 o'clock, then I can walk away from it. You know, if you're writing a script by yourself, you're always writing that script. And you're sitting there at night going, boy, should I go to the movies? Uh, You know, I really should be working on that script. But you know, look, nothing's going to happen until 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. (laughs) So go. And and I found that to be yeah. very freeing yeah. because when, you know, I, I work on stuff by myself, I'm like haunted by that. Yeah. You know, it's hard to just say, oh, well, okay, I'll just uh, go to the Dodger game tonight. Yeah. It's like, no, you know, you, you got that script too. And that's not to say it's always a f- hard and fast thing that you just put it down and stop thinking about it. Uh, uh, plenty of times we would we would come up with stuff, and, but yeah. then come back the next come day. Come back the next it. day, yeah. or I remember we had a our first episode of MASH and we had a very difficult speech to write, a uh, very dramatic speech to write given by Hawkeye and we wanted to get it just right. And I remember we would go to dinner, we, we, there would be a trail of napkins <laughs> a, a mile wide with with the next possible way to say that. Or right. uh, we, I remember we just worked on, I think we worked on that speech alone for about two days. Oh yeah, at least. At least. And, with, and that with, was... And at, at every meal too. And, and that was the speech, and I've talked about this before on the podcast and on my blog, that I think really made our career. It was our first MASH, and it was the episode where Hawkeye was blind, and it really wasn't in the outline. It was something that as we were writing the script, we figured, you know, there's no place here where Hawkeye actually talks about what he is experiencing. So we thought, well, why don't we give him a speech? And we figured, well, if they don't like it, they can just cut the speech, so what? And um, we spent days, and I mean, there have to be 60 different variations of that speech, and they were so impressed by that speech, I think that's really what knocked them out. And the you know, the one thing that I'm so proud of, you know, you talk about moments in your career that you're really proud of, the fact that the speech that Hawkeye delivers on the air is word for word our, our script. Yes, that's true. From our script. Well, I was very proud of that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You are now teaching at USC. Let's talk a little bit. So the career is over. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, you know. That was that, a long time. That's really, you know, the guy on the corner selling pencils out of a tin cup, you know, <laughs> teaching at USC. But talk a little bit about what you think goes into a good script. How do you approach a script? Is it the story? Is it the characters? Is it the humor? Is it the premise? Uh, is it the area? How do you go about really attacking uh, a script? I attack it in the way I learned to write. There's one big opening card, opening title, opening all-encompassing or purposeful idea, and that's character. Everything flows from character. All the things you mentioned, the, the world, the story, the premise, those are all part of a story, but they, for me, they always flow from character. And all the people that you and I worked for, 
and we worked for, we were lucky enough to work for some of the greatest TV people of all time, Gene Reynolds and, and Burr Metcalf and, and Glenn and Les Charles and, and uh, Larry Casey Gelbart, and Larry Gelbart, of course, and, and, and Peter Casey and, and, and David Lee and the late David Angel and, and, um, and Sam Simon and all the late Sam Simon, all the people that we were around, and I'm, 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 I'm Patch and Tarsus and Patch and Tarsus. I'm, I'm Jerry Belson. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm leaving. I'd be leaving yeah. out a lot of people, but th- that's the highlights. And if anything, all of those people worked on the story through the characters. The characters had, uh, if you were doing an episode, it was what ob- obstacle is that character facing that in a sense reflects that ca- that character's needs that character's wants and that's how you, there's where you find the story that's where the conflict will come from obstacles create conflict conflict creates comedy that's how I'm teaching i always say when you're a writer and people know you're a writer they will come up to you at at a at a function at a wedding at a bar mitzvah at a, at a party and they'll say Oh, they met you for the first time and they'll come up to you. Inevitably, they will come up to you and say, hey, you know, I work in a hardware store and it is the funniest place I've ever been. And the things that happen there are so funny and the people that come in are so funny. I think it would be a great show. And my answer to them is, well, who are the people who are my with people right. that work in this hardware store. Why do they work in this hardware store? What do they want by work? That stops the conversation, <laughs> which I want to stop because I want to eat my dinner. Yeah, but, the, but there's a thing where like a guy drops the nails right, and people right. slip on or the, the floor. Or the and guy make... comes in and he'll say, I'll get you a girl. Can you imagine that? I'll get me a girl if I'll take his nails. Uh, I, I, I said, but, but, but no, 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 no. I got to, I got to. In theory, I've got to be here every week. I've got to have a reason to want to watch these people. And that's where I start from. Character is theme. If, if you watch a show that I love, The Office, it's really a, simply about a place that is a sort of dead-end, soul-sucking working environment. But it's the character of Michael Scott, who is this sort of guy who, I mean, everything you know is right in front of him. He has a cup that says world's greatest boss. And you, just by that, you and, and by his, the way he talks about himself, you know you're dealing right away with a self-delusional human being. And so everything that happens here is going to flow through him and the stories are going to sort of come out of his just absolute neediness and absolute desire to be loved and be respected. And so all he's going to do is make this place even harder to work at. You've suddenly got dynamics. You've suddenly got things flowing. Frasier is, is simply, the idea for Frasier was simply the Frasier character, of course, but a guy who's got his life finally where he wants to get it, and he has to take care of his dad, and they're, they're not like each other. It's that simple. That's where I start from, the theme of having to in a sense, compromise your own selfishness. I want to live my life this way. I want to have my apartment this way. I want to have girls here all the time. Oh, my dad's here. Right away, that creates, creates conflict. It's that complex and it's that simple. And my final question, and uh, it's one that I ask comedy writers, and it's a good one to ask you because you're also a professor, but for young people, who are thinking of getting into this profession, what are some of the series 
down through the years that you think they should familiarize themselves with? In terms of half-hour series? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on how far back you want to go. I think you should always look at the Dick Van Dyke show because it's very much the first sophisticated comedy. Right. I think you should take a look at The Honeymooners because the relationship with Ralph Cramden and his wife is really atypical for the time that it was set in. So in a sense, you're getting this really interesting dynamic that's reflective of that time period. I'm getting too esoteric here. but No, that's okay. That reflective of that time period, the 50s, when everybody was kind of seemingly conforming and happy, and yet there's this sort of undercurrent of, of needing success and wanting. And it's really about this character's fear of failure, which is, me to me, a very important aspect of any kind of getting at a comic character. Fear is a, is a great thing to follow. I, we always used to say, follow the fear. What is the character afraid of losing? Or what are they afraid of facing? Ralph Cramden is a very basic kind of rudimentary character that fits that paradigm. He is f- totally afraid of failure. And so everything he does is with an eye towards, this is going to make me a success. So it's a great show to watch, and it's the precursor to All in the Family, which is another series you should watch, which is really about one character's fear of change. Archie Bunker, we think of him as a bigot. I think of him as a guy who's afraid of the world changing around him, and he reacts and lashes out at it. And then I would go on to the Mary Tyler Moore show, which is the, the, the next step over from, from the Dick Van Chyke show in terms of being the seminal show that brought you shows like the Bob Newhart show, Taxi, which is another show you should watch, which is the, maybe the great ensemble half hour. I think you should uh, certainly then go to Cheers, which begat Frasier. I think Everybody Loves Raymond is a great one. The Cosby Show certainly as a family show. Once again, I'm not promoting Bill Cosby. Then I think you're getting into the more sophisticated stuff now. The Office, I mentioned, 30 Rock, which is not so much a conventional type show, but is a great show that that sort of set the mark for, for the absurd kind of atmospheres that you see in a lot of the shows now. With Also with, though, once again, great characters, great relationship between Liz Lemon and and uh, and and Alec Jack Donaghy, yeah. yeah, which is one of the great romantic, platonic, platonic romantic relationships you can ever watch. And then we're going on, as I said, The Office. I, I was a big fan of Parks and Rec. Uh, I love. I think Blackish is a great series. Now I'm going to draw a blank here, but those are the shows I would familiarize with because they're just endlessly driving character. Yeah. And of course, I'm, I have to. Last but not least, I have to mentioned Seinfeld, which I think is uh, George Costanza is, if, I always say in my classes, my favorite character in all of fiction is, is uh, George Costanza. A little hurt that you didn't say Big Wave Dave. I did okay. Big Wave Dave. Okay. <laughs> Dave from Big Wave Dave. No, no, no. I mean, Costanza is, I could, do, I could do books on Costanza. Great stuff. David, thank you. My pleasure. Again, my thanks to David Isaacs for being here. Really good guest. I'm going to have him on again. We got a lot of stuff to talk about over a 44-year career, uh, specific episodes, all kinds of stuff. If you have any questions for us, if you have anything that you would like to know about the partnership or any questions for David or me, 
You can always send me an email, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, and I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. As always, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, and Randy Thomas. Please subscribe and give this podcast a five-star review. I don't know why, but they keep saying you got to plug that. So I would appreciate it. Again, thanks so much for being here, and I'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood.